This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Guy Royce. How you doing, Guy? I'm good. How are you doing? Excellent. We are both at uh, Music City Code 2016. Uh, both of us are out here doing some speaking and uh, doing some workshops. Um, how, did, how did your content go today? Oh, it went really well. Uh, um, you know, we had about, um, I think about 20 people in the room. So, Guy, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where do you work? Uh, what do you work on? So, um, I work for Pillar Technology in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and we got offices in, uh, in more locations than that. But that's, uh, that's I'd say that's probably where the bulk of our folks are at. And uh, I work there as a, as a pretentiously titled a, soft, a master craftsman software developer, um, which just means I'm, I've got a gray beard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I work on all kinds of things. Uh, right now, I'm working on a uh, Cordova application uh, for uh, iOS and Android. It's all JavaScript, and we're not using any particular framework. We've decided to not use a framework, which means we're inventing our own, uh, <laughs> which is honestly a ton of fun and uh, does give us a lot more flexibility. Um, I've worked on Java. I've worked on um, I've worked on a little bit of C sharp, although not not a ton recently. Um, some Ruby test automation, just just a wide assortment of things over uh, over my years at Pillar and over the years of my career. I mean, I've been writing software for twenty plus years, and so uh, I've done a lot of different uh, languages and platforms over the years. Um, probably the weirdest thing I've ever done is I actually test drove COBOL with Ruby. Um, I, I don't think anyone else can say that. It's like crossing the streams. Like I know that's why I do, right? <laughs> yeah, I called the uh, I called this. I built this little framework when it was. When I worked for an insurance company at the time. And they wanted me to take their Microfocus COBOL and test drive it. And uh, they had this tool called Cobb Unit out there. There's actually a unit testing tool for COBOL. And uh, I looked at it and it was just hard to use because it, it was COBOL. And um, and so I decided for irony, I was going to try and uh, uh, test it with Ruby code instead. And so I created a little uh, tool that's uh, it's not out there. On, you, you can't download it. I don't have it anywhere online. But I created this little tool to let me test drive it via Ruby. I called it Eternity because I figured uh, that COBOL code is going to be around for a while. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so uh, so I've worked in all kinds of, of platforms over the years. I've done Objective-C and Swift and just um, a whole lot of everything. So your workshop is titled uh, Putting the D&D in TDD. So that's a really interesting title. I'm <laughs> sure it has something to do with Dungeons & Dragons. Tell me a little bit about it. So um, several years ago, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, George Walters, and I, uh, we've been working on a lot of, a lot of katas and you got the bowling scores kata, you got the, uh, the Roman numerals kata, you got these katas and they help you figure out how to learn TDD, um, as part of a, a little, you know, code and algorithm out. And we, uh, we'd done a lot of those and you get pretty good at them, but we were having a hard time transitioning that small experience into something that made sense in the context of the work that we did. So, mm -hmm. you know, you spend all this time at the time we worked at an insurance company uh, and uh, you get this, 
this big gnarly set of insurance rules and saying if the state is this state and the person has this deductible and they're under this age, then do this thing. But if it's this other age and this other state with this other deductible, do this other thing. And if so, it was neither of those, it's just these really big, complex, gnarly business problems. So really exciting stuff. Oh, it, it's just riveting. Let me tell you, there's nothing <laughs> like uh, property and casualty insurance for the developer's soul. And, uh, and so we were having trouble translating that TDD experience of Kata's into a business experience of doing actual software development. You have to hold people's attention too when you're doing workshops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of got to give them a little bit of excitement to keep, you know, hold their attention in that room. Right, right. And so we, we went looking for a problem set uh, that would be kind of fun, that would make a, a bigger kata. We're looking for a bigger kata, something reflected what we did. And and I, and uh, I did some, you know, some uh, lazy tweet, lazy Google tweets and asked for some ideas on things. And someone suggested games. I'm like, games, that's a good idea. You know what game we should do? We should do Dungeons and Dragons. Because <laughs> there's a good chance that a software developer knows something about Dungeons and Dragons. It's kind of a geek thing, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, well, it's, it's, it's more than that, actually, because what developer... In my case, you know, back in the eighties, uh, when they when they were teenagers and, and middle school and that played Dungeons and Dragons, didn't think, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a computer programmer and I'm gonna program games. That was that, that's like the fantasy that we all had. Um, because that was the for many of us our initial experience with computers was playing video games. Let's Absolutely. make video games, let's make any kind of game. Uh, because that's the cool thing. And then you get out there and realize that uh, the game industry, programming games is a very different ball of wax than what most people want to pay you to write software for. And it's still interesting and you, you do it, but there's that little nugget that still wants to write games. And so it's like, hey, why don't you come to our workshop? We'll let you learn how to do TDD at scale on a game that you are familiar with and kind of get that little bit of fantasy fulfillment, that wish fulfillment of uh, I could be a game programmer for a day. So it, it touches on that. And so it's made it pretty popular. We've been doing it for, we've done it for five, six years now. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, we've barely updated the slides. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I could do it in my sleep at this point. Um, you know, we spend an hour doing a talk and then we literally, uh, and the talk's just sort of like an intro to TDD. It gives you a, uh, just an introduction to test-driven development, ping pong pairing, and just some of the basic starter points to get you going. And then you uh, you go from there and we just hand the cut off and have everyone pair up and pick their language and use the tools that they know how to use. And uh, they spend seven hours writing code and they uh, probably haven't, I've had many people say at the end of the session they're tired because they haven't written that much code in seven hours in years, um, which is, I think, I think that's my win condition. <laughs> yeah, I think if you are keeping people engaged for seven hours on any activity and the outcome is positive, I mean, you're, you're definitely doing something right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a ton of fun. Um, people keep wanting to hear it. People keep wanting to do it. Um, I, I'm kind of surprised that we're still doing it, honestly. There's a part of me that thinks, and I hope I'm not alienating anyone in the audience, that Oh, there's still people that need to hear this, you know, mm -hmm. in, in some ways I'm like, well, I've been doing TDD for, I don't know, six, seven, eight, maybe a decade. Um, probably not a decade, but close to it. Um, 
And so in my mind, it's like, well, everyone's heard this already, but there's still people out there who need to hear it. And so, yeah, there's always new people coming into the industry for one. And, uh, I, I do the same thing. I, I talk about responsive web design and the set, the set of slides that I use is as old as 2012. And I still give the same talk and there's always people that are interested. Uh, there's people that are either coming out of school and they just don't teach these things, especially like TDD and, uh, you know, responsive web may not be something that's being covered. Uh, you know, they might learn some computer science theory, but practical stuff, not so much. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, in some ways I'm surprised, I surprised myself that I fall into the trap. Because I know this, right? You know, mm -hmm. I know that it's, there's always someone, something's always new. I've, I've had people come up to me and say, well, I'd like to speak at conferences or, you know, start speaking at user groups, or, you know, do some public speaking, but I don't really feel like I know anything well enough to talk about it. I'm like, well, you could do a beginner talk. There's always someone that needs to hear that. And, yeah. and then I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't know if anyone really needs to hear this or not. You know? <laughs> I'm not listening to my own advice. I'm part of the human condition, I suppose. Probably. <laughs> Yeah, I've run into some similar things as well where people are like, well, I don't know anything that's unique, you know, that somebody'd like to hear about. I'm like, I guarantee you there's something you know that I don't know. Like there's Absolutely. I don't know everything, right? Uh there's only so many hours in a day, your life's only so long. You yeah. can't can't possibly know everything and experience everything the same way someone else has. I, I think uh part of what what I I've been doing over the course of my uh, speaking career has been doing basic stuff and putting a fun title on it. <laughs> so we got a, a basic TDD workshop. Let's do TDD at a, kind of at a scale, uh, which at the time we put that together, not a lot of people were doing. Um, and so that was a little unique at its time, but I don't think that's particularly unique now, but it's got a fun theme. We put a fun skin on it. You know, it's, it's putting the D and D in TDD. And it's, it's a little bit of a pun there. It's just a fun exercise. I did a talk on Meteor several years ago where it was called uh, Killing Dinosaurs with JavaScript. Um, you know, it's just making it fun, but it was just a basic bare bones introduction to Meteor. Um, and so putting that fun sort of veneer on something just to get the audience engaged helps it make it helps drive that uh, that experience for them that makes it a little more enjoyable. Yeah, and people do enjoy it, and uh, I'll give you a little compliment here. Uh, we, we're very uh, near each other in location. So I'm in Louisville, you're in Ohio, and we happen upon the same venues quite often. And a lot of times I'm running a, a sponsor booth at those locations. And one of the questions that I ask a lot of people is, did you see something good today? Or what was your favorite session? And more than one instance I've had, well, Guy Royce's session was amazing. <laughs> so that was one of the things that sparked this uh, this podcast episode to begin with was because I've, I've had people tell me that and I was like, you know what, guy, I've got to get you on the podcast and just talk to some folks. Well, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so the TDD workshop, uh, for people that aren't familiar with TDD, let's, let's give them a little intro. Like what is TDD? Well, I'll start with the most boring aspect of what TDD is and TDD stands for test driven development. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of one of those jokes, right? What's TDD? Oh, it's test driven development. Okay, that doesn't answer my question. Um, so test-driven development is this idea that, well, actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wind back a little bit. Rather than just ask, go with the idea, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mm -hmm. build up to it. Um, so before we had TDD, 
we had unit testing, just unit testing tools. And before we had unit testing tools, we had people who were unit testing tools, uh, pun intended. And um, so you say you're working on some website that's got a, you know, uh, service generated content. This is, you know, pre Ajax days, pre JavaScript heavy sites. But even with these, you write some code that's in the bowels of this application and you need to get to it to test it in a deployed state. So you make your changes that you need and then you got to spin up a server after you compile all your, uh, your code. You've got to go in and get to the point in the application to actually exercise your code. And then you finally get there and then it blows up with a null pointer exception. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so you uh, look at your code and you're like, oh, I see where I did it. I'm an idiot. I thought I was smart, but I was an idiot. And so you go in and you fix your NPE and then you run it again. You got to go through those manual steps again. Each time you do this, it's taken, well, I mean, in, in a good scenario, it's taking you 20 seconds to get that set up. In some scenarios, you know, the build takes, let's say the build takes five minutes. I mean, that's, that's an, uh, forever. And so you spend your day constantly rerunning this thing. And eventually you, you set up a debugger and you put a breakpoint and you look at it and you figure out what's what's actually happening in that code. And then it blows up again. And, you know, next thing you know, you spent four hours trying to get this little snippet of code work. And so someone invented unit tests. So you just like, let's just test the code we're working on and we can run that and get really fast feedback. And that was great. Um, so things like N unit came out and J unit and the, the, the star unit, maybe a whole, the whole X unit uh, stack of things. You've got R spec and Ruby, you've got Jasmine and Java uh, in the JavaScript land. Um, I don't, I don't actually honestly know what the first unit testing tool was out, was out there, but, um, but it was a great innovation. It, it saved a ton of time, but none of that is test driven development. That's all the stuff that enabled test driven development. Once you had those unit tests, someone got the clever idea of let's turn this thing on the head on its, let's turn this thing on its head. And that was, a am uh, pretty sure it was Kent Beck uh, that came up with that idea. And so he wrote his test first to see what code would be the minimum required to make that test pass. So you write a test, you write enough code to run it if you're using a compiled language, and then you write enough code um, to make that pass. No more, no less. And then you write another test. These tests are describing the behavior of the code you're writing. They're going through and, and so like in the case of Fizzbuzz, my favorite drinking game slash Kata, um, you go through and, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's going to return the number I hand it. So that's my first test. And I do the minimum to make that work. I return a hard coded one because I passed in a one. Then I pass in, write a test to validate that it can do other numbers. And then I return the number I'm handed and you slowly build up your specification, your specifications, your behavior that you wanted to do through, through these tests. And you just write the, just enough code each time. And when you're done, you end up with code that's cleaner and neater and smaller and lighter and not necessarily what you would have come up with if you'd just gone in and done it yourself the way you thought it should have been done. And, um, and, and furthermore, now you have, you know that every line of code exists to serve a test. And every line of code or every test exists to fulfill a requirement for that code. And so you can go in and change that code with impunity. 
without fear of breaking the application. And so instead of having to go through and go through this long cycle of testing my code and getting null pointer exceptions and clicking on the browser and doing all this stuff, I can just really quick get immediate feedback on my tests and I get clean code and I can get code I can, I can just, I can just sculpt it with these tests and make it do what I want. It's, it's beautiful. So uh, are you talking about things like red green refactors that yeah. uh, terminology that you use in your workshop or it, it is um, we, we uh, it, it's a red green refactor. So you got a red cycle, you got a red step where I write a failing test and then I run it running. It's very important uh, if, because it might not fail or might fail for the wrong reason. Um, then I write it, I write enough code to make it pass and I run it again. That's how I know it passes. And then we refactor if needed. And then you always, are of course, going to run after you refactor. And then you just keep going through that red green refactor uh, cycle. So, in, in the example of your workshop, like putting the TDD and, uh, or the DD, DND and TDD. <laughs> um, so, like, what would be one of the early steps that you take to create, like, say, your first unit test? So, um, so we deliberately, um, George and I set up the, uh, the Evercraft kata, that's that's the exercise we call it, the Evercraft kata, um, because we had this great idea of creating an online role-playing game. It was a totally new idea. No one had ever done it before. <laughs> and um, we deliberately set it up so that it was very specific in the requirements initially. So the very first requirement is um, that the hero has a name and it can be changed. Um, that's a really easy test. And in practice, if I was writing real code, I probably wouldn't write a unit test for a, a getter setter, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, these things just sort of come along for free. Generally, you don't have to worry about them. Other code tends to exercise them, but you know, this is a workshop, so we want to ease yeah. you into it. And so, um, the first test you usually write using uh, whatever tool you want, um, is it has a default name. And then you exercise the method and validate that the string comes back with the expected default name. Uh, we, we don't tell them what the default name is because we want them to interact with us as product owners and, uh, and get used to the idea that not all the requirements are always there. So you kind of got to just like at work, you got to kind of dig for some of the requirements sometimes. There's, yeah, some, there's implied requirements. There's things that we missed or they don't quite make sense. We've got things like that in the exercise we've, too. We've always, we've all been handed that obligatory. I want an app. Yeah. And that's about it. That's like, we, we need an app. We, we definitely need an app. Absolutely need an app. Okay. Uh, I, I hear that they have uh, Apple stores that <laughs> you can get. There's, I, there's an app for that. Yeah. So you start it's with old, the old bad commercial <laughs> reference. I'm sorry. <laughs> you start with the, uh, the default name test. What, um, I've, I've looked into some TDD stuff before and people suggest things like, uh, you know, you don't even have a class yet and you write a test for something that doesn't even exist. Do you recommend going that far into your tests, your testing and, and doing that type of thing? So, uh, uh, you know, I certainly don't write tests to validate that classes exist. Right. right. I've seen people do that. Yeah. Some people say that's the first failing test. It seems a little, I don't know, monotonous. Well, um, well more of the point is my test should be behavioral in its, in its nature. It should describe the behavior of the application. And it, it, it's best if it's couched in more businessy terms than it is a couched in technical terms. So if I have a test that says, 
this guy has a method named this thing, right? You know, has a foo method. Well, now I'm locked into having a foo method forever, even if I don't care if I have a foo method. No one, the, the stakeholders don't care if I have a foo method. They want to know if the character has a name or not. Not uh, that there's an underlying property that is where the name is stored. They don't care about that. That doesn't matter. That's the internal implementation. Um, and so saying that there is a class, you know, in, in a test name, that's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's a testing anti-pattern. Uh, you, you want your test to reflect the behavior of the application, not the implementation of the app, of the code you're writing. Um, now, there are um, things that you have to do in order to get it to work. So uh, let's say you're doing the Evercraft Kata in Java. I've done it in Java many times. Uh, or C Sharp. They're honestly not that terribly different. Um, and you're going to have to write a little bit of plumbing to get the test to compile. Right, so I'm going to have to call new on a hero class. I'm going to have to instantiate it and then call a method, and that method is going to have to be created and at least return null, and so that my test can run and fail. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just kind of the nature of, the, of working with a uh, with compiled languages. It's just kind of what yeah. they do. Uh, there's no getting around it. And people say, well, you know, that first time you get that first error saying class doesn't exist, that's your first test. I'm doing air quotes. That's your first test. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's fair. That's not a bad way to think about it. Um, but I, I don't get hung up on it. It's just, I've got to write all this stuff before I can even run anything. So you just have to do it. If you're doing something like JavaScript or Ruby, then you can write your full test and run it. And then it will complain that things don't exist when you run it. And you end up in the same place anyhow, though. So... I, th I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, that actually answered it very well because I, I see a lot of uh, uh, pieces of that are written that way or talk to people that are like, that's your first failing test. You must do it that way. Ha you have to have the red. You have to do that. And a compiler error to me isn't so much of a test. Like uh, it may be exercising the fact that the test framework is working just to get something like, um, for example, I can create this class just to make sure that my test runner's running and yeah. it understands where the tests are and can find them. But beyond that, like once I'm, I've got the project running, I don't need to do that for every class I write. Right. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, you, you have to write the class regardless. And so there's, you don't really have tests that express that class. It's just, um, you got tests that use that class. And so like, uh, you know, if you're using, and I haven't done a lot of Visual Studio, I've done a lot more Java, but if you're using uh, using an IDE and you're writing some Java code, and, and God, I hope you're using an IDE if you're writing Java code, because I can't <laughs> imagine dealing with the directory structure otherwise. Like, I have nightmares that someday I'm going to have to write Java with a VI, and <laughs> that, that would be just, you know, it's like, save me, you know, take me now. <laughs> um, but... You know, you, you write that code and then it complains that a class doesn't exist. If you're using Eclipse, you can hit Command-1 and it will create the class for you. Or if you're using IntelliJ, you can hit, I think it's Alt-Enter. Obviously, I'm used Eclipse more than IntelliJ. Yeah, and there's similar and, paradigms in, yeah. in Visual Studio where you hit Control period and it creates the class or adds the using or uh, hints to you in some way to fix what you broke. Yeah, and so those are, as far as the, quote, failing test, unquote, goes, is just that I get the angry red squiggly in my IDE and I fix it so that I can actually run the test. Right. That's, that's all there is to it. 
Um, I've heard people actually tell me though, that the TDD is BS because you can't write a test and then run it. And then if there's no code at all to run, I'm like, eh, you're being pedantic. Yeah. You know, let's just be practical and say, yeah, yeah, it turns out you actually have to write the code that all this stuff's going to be in and that's okay. So the, this kind of gets us into like, when should we write tests? Like we, we kind of discussed when we shouldn't maybe, uh, little too early in in the uh, development cycle just to say okay i need a class we shouldn't maybe test that but when should we start testing well i'd say test early and test often <laughs> so um yeah i'd say test early and test often um so i mean you start with the test i don't start with the, the plumbing code i do write the test first it doesn't always compile and then i write enough to, for it to compile um but it's just from day one that's how i start the project I do, before I start writing tests, I'll sometimes go through a, a little bit of a planning phase. I wouldn't go so far as to say a design phase or like a big upfront sort of planning, but um, I want to know what my pieces are. So if I'm working on um, like, a, you know, I'm working on some sort of UI piece and I, I know I'm going to have a model and I know I'm going to have a view and I know I'm going to have a controller, um, I should probably know that before I go in. Uh, there's a little bit of sort of like uh, design slash architecture that happens before the testing begins where I need to know what my units are before I can write unit tests. Um, and so there's a little bit of forethought beforehand, but uh, the insides of those things are um, are totally test driven from the beginning. So if I, I, I know that the controller is going to be, it's going to respond in a particular way or the model is going to have these properties. And I know how they're going to interact with the view and the controller to an extent. I, I still learn things as I go through the process. You know, we're, we're not linear in our thinking. It's we're in there coding, we're doing things. And you're like, oh, crap, I didn't even think about this other thing. And now I got to change things. But um, for the most part, I just start testing right away. I write the first unit test and uh, get some code, write another unit test and um, just go to town on it. I have heard uh, this is uh, something that I haven't tried, uh, but it's an interesting idea. Um, and uh, someone brought it up to me in, in the workshop uh, today where um, they had been talking, they'd read something uh, that I think a blog post by uh, Uncle Bob said that you should start with all the weird edge cases first when you're writing a unit test and narrow in into the happy path. Our instinct is go to the happy path first and say, you know, oh, it does the thing I expect it to do. And, uh, and you know, he was advocating, well, let's try passing a null and start passing in zero and empty string and all so these bad try to values. break it and then code all those scenarios first and sort of corner the application and the corner of the code until it gets to the part where it's going to do the actual work. I thought that was kind of interesting. So, I, so that's one of the cool things about doing these workshops is you get to learn stuff when you're, uh, yeah, when you give them as well. Sounds effective in finding like, uh, you know, what if somebody's passing in this or what if the user doesn't, you know, put something in and it gets by validation. Now you have a null value coming in the system. Uh, those scenarios that you don't necessarily think about uh, when you're developing it, uh, you know, Greenfield. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think, um, man, that might be half of the benefit of doing that would be just the fact that lots of times once you get the happy path done, you, you feel like you're done. And so you don't, you know, you got the psychological effect of, Hey, I've accomplished mm -hmm. a thing. Check. Shipped it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, achievement unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you don't feel like you need to do those other things. And even though, you know, logically you do, but you're, I think there's a psychological thing that happens where you're not as invested in the process of doing that at that point, because you kind of like the fact that you're done. 
And so you gloss over them or they become a little bit of an afterthought. So forcing you to do those things up front, that might be a good habit. Do the, do, the, do the crap work first. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some other highlights from uh, the workshop, uh, fun points, anything else that you'd like to kind of talk about? Well, um, the, I don't know if this is, I thought this was fun. I'm just, I'll leave it at that. Um, so when you're doing the Evercraft Kata, uh, here's some hints if you, you're out there and you're going to do it. If you want to, you know, you want to put the D&D and TDD and do the Evercraft Kata. If you want to play the home version, <laughs> um, and I believe there'll be links in the show notes for that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there's two main approaches to it. And one is where I code a character or a hero. Hero is a good class name. Uh, one of the challenges with this problem uh, is, is that we have characters and that's one of, one of the entities in the game. And most programming languages have a character as some sort of reserved word. And then uh, we have classes, you know, if you're a wizard or, or, mm. or a barbarian or so whatever, that's also a keyword. Um, and so uh, several of the, the, the terminology in the, in the domain space is actually they're they're actually programming reserved keywords. And so, uh, that's a little problematic sometimes. And so we usually call it a hero, usually the hero class or a player character that works sometimes well. I like hero because it's four characters as opposed to player character, which is more. Um, I'm not going to count them for you. <laughs> Leave that as an exercise to the listener. Um, but you can create that hero and you start putting properties like their name and their alignment and uh, their hit points and their armor class. And then you have to have the ability that they can attack. And at the point they can attack, one temptation would be to add an attack method to the hero that takes another hero and the die roll. That's, that's an approach to this problem. And that works okay, but it starts turning the hero into a god object. And uh, while that it might be an advancement path in advanced Dungeons and Dragons, that isn't necessarily what we want our code to look like. We, you know, you get this really large object that just has all the combat behavior in it, and it's just it knows everything. It becomes that god object of the system. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the in my opinion, better approach, although there are always many ways to do things, um, is to create some sort of combat object, and then it has two heroes on it, and it has a method to resolve an attack. And uh, that solves that problem of getting all that logic out of the out of the players, uh, out of the heroes, and putting it into a, into a container where it really belongs, and putting it in a properly scoped area. So it's a, it keeps your classes smaller, it keeps the abstractions apart. So um, one of the uh, people in our session did this, and um, the fun part that was a, a long lead up to the fun part. The fun part was is the name to Thunderdome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so that was that was really fun. Um, we had several people, you know, part, part of the idea of the workshop is, is that we're going to show them how to do T and D we're going to show them how to do TDD as opposed to try and selling them on, on it. And we always have people that are sold on it when, by the time they're done. And that's really cool. Uh, we get people that were a little skeptical or weren't sure how to do it. They do it for the day. And then at the end of the day, they're asking the question, how can I convince my company to let me do this all the time? And that is such a hard topic. And I, I never really have a great answer for them because it's it's always the same reasons, um, but the it's hard to convince people that don't instinctively believe that this is going to be better. Um, it's it's a little counterintuitive, and so it's it's a tough sell sometimes. And so my advice to them is usually just just go do it and don't ask. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, you should be writing unit tests anyhow. And most people are behind that, even if they don't think this TDD or this pairing stuff is a good idea. So if you just do it backwards, they're not even going to know. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah, if you're trying to explain to non-developer types or C-level people what you're doing is going to be beneficial, they're they're going to want some kind of ROI or yeah. how is this shipping the product faster? How is it, you know, going to make us richer versus oh, it's going to be more stable and we're going to need possibly less developers on it to maintain it and yeah. we'll have something more robust when we need to change it. Yeah, it's it's well, it's it's the age old problem, and this is a this is a universal problem, which is that we know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. I didn't make that up. I mean, I heard that from someone else, uh, but it's it's so true in our space, uh, in all aspects of how we do the work. So we do TDD, and we know it's valuable, but we can't quantify how it's valuable in in very concrete terms. But the people who are paying us know exactly how much we cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they see all they see is the cost and they don't see the value and because the value is kind of ephemeral and you, you have the same thing in like an agile team where you've got, you know, your various cards and it's like, well, what's the most valuable card to be working on? Well, how do we quantify that? You know, the product owner chooses, but it's not like it's, this has got 17 value points and this one has 23 <laughs> value points. And so clearly we should do the 23 value points. They're really not doing that. They're, that value is always something we don't really know. It's sort of a gut check. And so that's why it's always so hard to convince someone to that. Hey, we should do this thing that I know is valuable, but you can't really articulate it well. Um, Cause in a way you never can. Yeah. It's, I think you run into that in craftsmanship of any kind. Mm-hmm. And I say that in, when I mean any kind, I mean, literally like woodworking oh, or yeah. construction or, um, you know, doing something artistically, you can't always put value behind something, but you are, you know, quantify it, but you can say, you know, I know this is the right way to do it because this is the quality way to do it and it's going to make it better. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, uh, last summer I put new gutters on my house because they were in terrible shape and, uh, and because they were in terrible shape, some of the soffit underneath uh, the gutters was rotten because they had been leaking under my soffit and rotting parts of my house, which is a, a, a bad. And if uh, you know, you ever find yourself in that situation, don't find yourself in that situation. <laughs> uh, um, and so um, the guy came out and said, well, what do you want us to do here? It's like, you got damaged stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I want you to do the right thing and do it like it was your house. And the guy had this relieved look on his face. He's like, oh, finally, I got a customer that actually wants it done right. And isn't going to try and uh, nickel and dime on every little thing and get it as cheaply as he possibly can. It's like, well, this is my house. You know, I want it to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that happens in all sorts of industries. It's just, once again, part of the human condition, I suppose, right? <laughs> Very much. So if we wanted to check out the Evercraft Kata, uh, where can we find it? So um, the Evercraft Kata, we, we actually have it on, it's on GitHub. It's just a readme. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on, uh, we have an organization that we've created, you know, how on GitHub, you can create those organizations that are you know, people can be members of, and they have mm-hmm. their own unique URL. It's at github.com slash putting the D and D in TDD. Um, and it's, it's all capitalized. So that's, so look in the show notes. Yeah. So <laughs> but, we will definitely, it's out there on GitHub. if you Google putting the D and D in TDD, you should find it. Uh, I believe I have a link to it as well on my website at guyroyce.com. You can check it out there. 
Okay. And we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes and you'll be able to find those at developer.telerik.com. And we also have uh, a link to uh, a YouTube video that you did at Star Trek. Uh, you want to tell us just a little bit about what that, that YouTube video entails? Sure. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that I've run into is, uh, is lots of really, 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 really bad JavaScript. You're kidding. Uh, no way. I know, right? <laughs> Stunning, right? Um, I remember at a conference like five years ago, I saw someone, uh, they were talking about JavaScript code quality. I mean, it was five years ago, right? You know, <laughs> you'd think by now we would have solved the problem of bad code. <laughs> Some of this uh, I've probably written. Yeah. <laughs> probably me too. Where um, it was showing a bunch of HTML markup on a page. This is on a slide. I don't remember who did it, but, and then there was a picture of a pile of, a uh, picture of a plate of spaghetti and then more HTML markup. And, and it was inside of the script JavaScript tag, right? <laughs> um, because it always gets really tangled. And so um, I wrote a talk to talk about some of the techniques I've, I've come up with over the years of dealing with these really bad spaghettiized, spaghettified, and black, and that's a black hole <laughs> term, I believe, um, JavaScript, um, I don't know if I want to call them code bases. I don't know if they deserve that much. <laughs> um, but of just pulling them apart so you can start testing them. And uh, I call it jQuery and 10,000 global functions um, because that's what these <laughs> apps always look like. Um, and uh, if, if, maybe, maybe. They might not actually have any functions at all. Sometimes you see these things where the very first line of code in the JavaScript file that's brought in, assuming it's not just in the script tag is the dollar sign. And it takes a fun uh, parent and it takes a function. So that's jQuery's way of saying when the DOM is done loading, go ahead and start running the JavaScript. And then it takes an anonymous function. And then the first thing it does is it makes an Ajax call. And then when that Ajax call returns, it takes an anonymous function. And then when that's done, then we need to make another Ajax call and another anonymous function. And then you realize by the time you get done looking at all this code, that there aren't any, it's all anonymous functions. It's all asynchronous anonymous lambdas. There's nothing that I can actually call. And so when you go to put unit test on it, your first thing is I can't, there aren't any units. There's, it's just all code. There are no units that there's nothing I can call to actually write a unit test against. How do you put a test around that? Right. Yeah. And, so uh, my, in my talk, uh, which uh, the guys at Stir Trek recorded, uh, I basically go through some techniques I have to pull that code apart and uh, kind of why that code tends to exist. And it's sort of a little bit of where legacy code comes from in the beginning. And the second half is like a lexicon of refactoring techniques for dealing with uh, really gnarly JavaScript code. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, check it out. You don't know how immensely useful that type of stuff is to people because I wish I would have known about that when I was refactoring a project I was given. So we had uh, corporate software that we bought. This is a big company that that's a vendor of this stuff. I won't name the company. Uh, I won't publicly shame them. <laughs> it's probably probably not a good bridge to burn. Yeah. Um, but when when we bought their product, 
uh, and this is like an off the shelf thing. It's not like a custom thing. Yeah. And they're like, if you need to do reports, you just copy this HTML file and change a couple values. And we built these things for ages. And these were built by business level people, not developers. Right. Yeah. So one day the, the business guy is like, I need to make this change. I've been trying to fix this thing and it keeps blowing up and I don't understand what it's doing. I get the HTML page from him and it is, like you said, open tag, but instead of JavaScript, in this case, it was VBS. <laughs> Inside that VBS tag was a single function that did about 11 T things, right? Yeah. So it had many, many responsibilities. And this was from the software vendor. This wasn't code we wrote. Yeah. This wasn't what the business person wrote. This is what he was given to modify as a template. So I went back through and refactored everything out to have separate functions and named something besides yeah. like AA. I mean, there was just, <laughs> it was the worst case scenario like you could possibly imagine. Um, and I, I added things like logging to it and all sorts of normal you know, software developer things. Yeah. And I handed it back to the business person and he looked at me and he was like, I didn't know code was supposed to look like this. Like, he's like, I'm never touching this again. Like <laughs> if I have anything that needs to be done, I'm giving it to you. <laughs> but your, your video sounds very much like what I had to painfully go through. So the, the extra advice would have been very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got a lot of positive feedback on the talk. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, you, you run into these scenarios in this JavaScript where like someone thought it would be a good idea to generate JavaScript code from, uh, if you're a Java developer, uh, from the JSP. So you got JavaScript code that's got dynamic little things to change inside of it. That's hard to test. And, um, I actually, in my talk, I don't have good advice on that particular scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's, well, partly because that's a really hard one. Partly because it's going to be sort of platform dependent. It's like I've got functionality that now is spanning two tiers of the application. And so I got to figure out where it belongs. And so that, that falls, that, that's not a careful, simple refactor and then put tests around a thing. That's a, this was just thought about wrong. This is actually one of the big challenges, actually. This is the sort of stuff in dealing with legacy code in general, not just with JavaScript or um, Java or C Sharp or Ruby. Ruby, don't get me started. The glorious spaghetti you can write for Ruby. Oh my God. Um, I've dealt with a lot of very poorly written Cucumber test automation suites. Um, but um, the problem with them is, is that the units are wrong. The abstractions are all wrong. So instead of having abstractions around things that are sort of in the context of the problem domain, they're just kind of, well, they're abstracted around the technology stack instead. And so you've got the functionality you actually want to test strewn across the model, the view, the controller, or the, the business logic thing in the middle, the database, in, in, partly in a stored procedure. And really you need to take them out of all those pieces and put them in their own thing in, in some sort of unit of code. Mm -hmm. And that sort of re-architecting is really, really challenging. That's not, that's not a trivial level of refactoring. So I, uh, I point that out as a sort of a, uh, a thing that happens in JavaScript that we have to deal with and it's very painful, but it's actually really hard to fix. Um, but there are plenty of other things that are just kind of hard to fix. And I, I talk about those. <laughs>
So we'll we'll include that in the show notes. And where can we find more information about you, Guy? Oh, well, you can go to my website at guyroyce.com. You can follow me on Twitter and see me uh, tweet about once a month. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I, I find lately I spend more time on Facebook than I do on Twitter um, because uh, because the politics there are just so much more engaging. I'm <laughs> 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 just kidding. Um, because uh, I see more cute cat pictures there and it calms me down uh, on, on Facebook. Um, but, uh, I, I'm guy, I'm at guy Royce on Twitter and that's R O Y S E, um, not C E. Uh, that's, a, that's another person. That's not me. I have the, uh, the weird alternate spelling of Royce, um, guy Royce.com. You can, uh, go check out my blog. I, I blog there almost as frequently as no, I'm lying. I blog there about three times a year, uh, <laughs> but there's an about page and you can get a hold of me there. Um, and, um, I have a YouTube channel, which has just a handful of videos on it. I'm actually really bad at social media, uh, but I do have a website, so you can get a hold of me there. And if you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me. I'm a friendly guy. I'm a little slow with the email, but I will respond. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me. It was a lot of fun. Sure. And uh, I look forward to running into you at more conferences. I'm sure we'll see each other again. Absolutely. Absolutely.